Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. The subtitle for this sermon series is The Promises and Warnings of Second Peter. Well, throughout our service this morning already, we've had some promises, but we've also had some warnings. And you see this pattern of promises and warnings oftentimes recurring in Scripture. We get promises of good things to come, but there's also warnings that God gives us to contemplate, warnings to, uh, to get us to turn away from the way that we are traveling. And this morning, Peter is giving us a warning. Our text is going to be uh, three verses, verses uh, 11 through 13. But for context, I'm going to pick up reading with verse 10, which we looked at briefly last week. So hear the word of the Lord. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter warns us, just as he promises us, he warns us that there is a day coming, a day of judgment, a day that he refers to as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming. There will be judgment. And Peter thinks that the day of the Lord should change the way that we live now, now when he talks about the day of the Lord, you might think about the second coming. Right? Jesus came, his first advent, and now we look forward to his second advent. But when this term, the day of the Lord, is used, it means not just the second coming, but has in mind particularly one aspect of that second coming, which is the coming judgment. Now, judgment sounds bad, and judgment is bad if you face it unprepared, but the coming judgment is also the coming restoration of justice. Right? This is when Christ will come and God will do justice in the world. There will be final judgment. This is the day that the book of Revelation talks about. In Revelation chapter 20, this is verses 11 through 15 talking about that final judgment. John's vision, John says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
So this event, this judgment, is looming in the future. And now Peter, with that in mind, says, if the day of the Lord is coming, how should we live? How should that affect the way that we live? And he gives us some answers. If judgment is coming, then we should seek holiness and godliness. If judgment is coming, the way we should live is we should seek holiness and godliness. What does that mean, though? What does it mean to seek godliness, to seek holiness? I think at its most basic, it means taking Christ as your standard, not self. There's this great uh, slogan of the Renaissance, uh, man is the measure of all things. We associate it with uh, uh, Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian Man, that naked guy with a circle around him and all those lines. The idea is there's something wonderful about uh, a human being. There's something all-encompassing, that this is like the pinnacle of creation. And yet, if we want to live holy and godly lives, we can't order those lives according to our own judgment as human beings. We have to take Christ, uh, the perfect man, as our frame of reference, as our model. And part of what that means is, if we want to pursue holiness, we have to look to the God who is himself holy. We have to use God's standard for judging what is good and what is evil and not our own. And where do we find that standard? We find it in Scripture. So if, because of the judgment to come, we're going to live holy lives, we're going to seek holiness, seek godliness, that begins by finding out what it looks like in God's revelation of himself in Scripture. Why is that so important? Because that is the standard against which we will be judged. As John says in the book of Revelation, as the book is opened and the deeds are evaluated, and what every person has done is measured, is judged, the standard against which that judgment takes place is not um, majority opinion. It's not, did we all try to do our best? The standard against which we will be judged is the standard that God has revealed in Scripture. It's not inaccessible. It's not mysterious. It's not hard to find. You're not going to face judgment without any preparation or any warning that it's coming. It's all here. It's all before us. It's all revealed to us. Not only that there will be a judgment, but the standard against which we will be judged. It is, and this is a terrible analogy, but it's as if, God has said there will be a final exam, but here are all the answers. You can study for this. You can work towards it. And and that essentially means, working towards it means changing the way you live. Knowledge of the future, changing the way we live in the present. We should seek to be holy, seek to live godly lives. Peter says more than that, though. He says we should anticipate the day. We should anticipate the day. Look forward to the day of the Lord. Look forward to this coming judgment because waiting for Christ means waiting for restoration. Judgment means justice. It means making sure that what is good is rewarded and what is evil is punished. The day of the Lord means the end of death. It means the completion of your salvation so we should live lives of anticipation, looking forward to it, longing for that day to come. We should anticipate the day, but we should do more than that. Peter says we should hasten it. To hasten it means to, uh, to, to try to make it come sooner, to move it along, which is interesting because the Bible tells us that none of us knows 
when Christ will come again, that no man knows the day or the hour, that it's not possible for us to know, and yet Peter says we should hasten the day. We should do things to accelerate the timeline. Now, sometimes people talk about things we can do to accelerate the timeline, to get Christ to come back again. And usually, uh, at least for a certain kind of Christian, the thing we could do to accelerate the, the timeline, to hasten the day, would be to do something like rebuild the Temple of Solomon. Because once that happens in their minds, then, then God now is on the clock. And he's he only got so much time left before he has to come again. That's not what Peter has in mind. When Peter talks about hastening the day, he's focusing us on the things that we have been given to do in this life. We hasten the day through faith in Christ. We hasten the day through our belief in Him. We hasten the day through prayer. Every time we come together and we pray, Thy kingdom come, we are with the hopes of our hearts hastening the day that is coming. We hasten the day through obedience. By not only praying thy will be done, but living it. By making it so, we hasten the day. We hasten the day as well by encouraging one another. As the author of Hebrews says, we ought as Christians to encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. We hasten the day of the Lord by coming together as a community, as a body, and encouraging and building one another up. These are all things we do We know judgment is coming. We know that Christ will come again. And we want to live our lives as if that is so. And yet, we really do struggle to proclaim this message of judgment. As Christians, we much prefer carrots to sticks. We much prefer rewards to punishments. Honestly, nothing makes us more uncomfortable than coming across these sort of hellfire and brimstone, turn or burn passages in Scripture. Because if you say this stuff out loud, you sound pretty judgmental. If you read passages like this, as if you believe in them and see some good in them, you sound pretty self-righteous to everybody else. In fact, you feel pretty self-righteous doing it. I don't know about you, but when I read these things about judgment and fire and destruction, I try not to put too much feeling into my voice. I don't want you to think that, that there I am looking at the destruction and saying, yeah, burn them all. You know, that's not the, the, the joy of his coming that I feel or want to project. Right? So we have a little bit of a conflict here. Because it feels like every time we say there's a judgment coming, and if there's a judgment coming, then you should live differently than you do, that it seems like what we're really saying to the world is, uh, you need to be good like us, or else you're going to get punished. And that sounds really self-righteous. Christianity has a reputation for self-righteousness. It has a reputation for being judgmental. In part, this is because to the outside world, it's a lot easier to tell what Christians are against than what we're for. You ask the random person on the street whose only knowledge of Christianity comes from the outside, from media, from from Christians they happen to know and the things those Christians say or worse, post online, then you would discover that, that Christians are mainly just against things. They're against 
progress, they're against choice, they're against freedom, they're against most people's happiness. Sometimes it seems, including their own, Christians are just against a lot of stuff. And as a result, the solution to a lot of it seems like we as Christians need to to rebalance the message and start talking a lot more about what we're for than what we're against. Like instead of just talking about the things that we condemn or the things that the Bible condemns, we ought to do a much better job being articulate and passionate about the things the Bible approves of, that it condones, so that we create a positive vision of the Bible's teaching instead of a negative one. If we talk about the good, maybe we could attract people into the kingdom. We could uh, put away the stick of judgment and just hold out the carrot of reward and maybe show how good a carrot that really is. And all of that seems right to me. I, I understand the logic of it. I, I uh, don't want to be perceived as merely judgmental. And yet, Scripture has this funny way of challenging what seems right to us. Because we find not just the promises, but also the warnings. And you come across the warning, and you have to deal with it. You have to look it head on, and you have to see that here's Peter saying, there will be judgment. There will be judgment. And maybe we need to hear that. If you've thought about it this way, maybe as much as we need to hear the promises, we also need to hear the warnings. We need this, perhaps even as much. Maybe there's something that we need to learn from the warnings of judgment in Scripture. If you go back to your Old Testament and you begin at the beginning and just start reading forward, you're going to find story after story after story in which God comes to his people and he says, judgment is coming. I'm going to destroy you unless you repent. Over and over again, this pattern repeats itself. That's the story of Noah's flood. Plenty of time God gives the world to turn away from its evil. The world decides not to do that, and God brings judgment. Noah's flood. It's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. God sees these cities wallowing in wickedness, and he decides, I'm going to bring judgment. I'm going to destroy them with fire. Exactly the kind of thing that Peter talks about here. God says there will be judgment, there will be destruction, and sure enough, the city doesn't turn away from its sin, and it is destroyed. There's a story of Jonah, everybody's favorite uh, seagoing prophet. Jonah is given a mission very similar to this. The only difference from that story and the others is that the people of Nineveh do, in fact, repent. But it's the same idea. Jonah is sent to them to tell them, turn or burn, basically. He's given, he's, it's as if God has put the, the placard in his hand and said, Jonah, I want you to go march up and down the street and be one of those offensive Christians who is telling everybody it's time to repent or you will be destroyed. That's the mission that Jonah is given in Nineveh. What if all of those stories in Scripture have something to teach us today about the warnings of judgment? If you think about the story of Noah's flood, Peter's already shown us that that story has a lot of power to explain things. Like, if you want to understand why it is 
that, that people all around you perpetrate evil and seem to experience no consequences as a result, you need to go back to the flood. You need to understand that after that destruction of wickedness in the world, God made a promise that God would show mercy, that he would establish a new order, and he sealed that promise with a rainbow in the sky, which continues to be seen to this day. The mercy that God shows, the patience, as we saw last time, that God is showing is explained in the story of judgment told in the days of Noah. Sodom and Gomorrah is an interesting story as well. Like We look back on that and we see the judgment that God brings, but there's a lot to learn from the way that Abraham responds in that situation. Think about Abraham knowing that judgment is coming on this evil city, knowing from Lot, who's a first-hand witness, that it is an evil city, that it deserves what it has coming. What does Abraham do? This country dweller, seeing the, 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 the destruction coming on the city, does he go and build himself a tent so he can watch? Does he gather together all of his tribesmen and say, there's going to be an interesting show, and they've got it coming? No. Abraham intercedes on behalf of the unrighteous city. Abraham begs God to show mercy on the unrighteous. He intercedes for the condemned. There's a lesson there for us, I think. An attitude. There's another lesson. There's an intimation of the future also in this conversation that Abraham has. Because Abraham seems to know intuitively, without having been taught, without having found it in Scripture, that the way salvation might work in a situation like this where God says he's going to condemn the unrighteous, Abraham realizes that maybe God would spare them for the sake of the righteous. That maybe the whole city might be spared if there's just enough righteous in it. And so he he does this negotiation with God. Would you spare the city for X number of righteous people? You would. What about a few less righteous people? And in that conversation, we have this intimation of the gospel, which is essentially a story about a people condemned to destruction for their unrighteousness who are saved for the sake of a righteous man. As Abraham thought might be the case. When Jonah goes to Nineveh, we learn something else, which is you can repent. It is possible to hear the warning and to turn, to repent, Nineveh, the Assyrian Empire, this wicked place, these foreigners who are strangers to God's covenant are warned that destruction is coming and they turn around. There's actually hope there in a place that you would have thought was without hope. Now, Jonah, the prophet, wants their destruction. He's rooting for it. He's disappointed that these people aren't destroyed. But God rejoices in their repentance. Now what if all of these Old Testament stories of judgment and destruction and occasionally repentance, what if all of those stories function for us as types and shadows of one larger call to repentance, one ultimate reality of judgment and a call to turn? What if all of them point to the day of the Lord that Peter is talking about. Every little judgment, 
every little warning, every little destruction, so to speak, points forward to that final, ultimate reality. And all of them teach us, as types and shadows do, how to live in light of that future reality. The warnings and the promises are meant to give us hope. Hope that we could repent and believe and avoid the punishments we are warned about and enjoy the promises that are being made, the rewards promised to us. We, as those who have turned, those who have repented and accepted Christ, must not have attitudes of self-righteousness towards those who are still under that judgment. We must not rejoice in the punishment and the judgment of the unrighteous, but instead intercede with God for their salvation. Just as the people of Nineveh turned, the people of today's Nineveh can be called back to Christ as well. There's no one that is beyond hope. There's no one that the Holy Spirit cannot quicken. We shouldn't look with Jonah-like glee and anticipation of the destruction. Because what we anticipate in the day of the Lord is not the destruction. It's what comes after that. We are unrighteous. We are unrighteous. But we have been saved. Our hope is not in cleaning up our act. Our hope is not that ultimately on the day of the Lord it'll turn out that compared to most people we were actually pretty good and therefore deserve to be rewarded. Our hope is in the righteousness of another, Jesus Christ. So let's live like judgment is coming. To live like judgment is coming means to take seriously those warnings, not to be silent about them, not to be self-righteous about them either, but rather to repeat them, to echo them, to warn because judgment is real, but to intercede in love. Intercede in love. We have to live like judgment is coming. It is real. The warnings that are given are not empty. The day will come, Scripture says. We've got to take it seriously. In addition to living like judgment is coming, though, we have to live like Christ makes all things new. Live like Christ makes all things new. Because I said, the day of the Lord isn't just judgment. It's also restoration. We see in the book of Revelation, Christ promises to make all things new. Isaiah, long before, had prophesied this day would come, this idea of a new heaven and a new earth after the destruction. Isaiah says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. That's Isaiah 65. If throughout the Old Testament you find these, these repeated warnings of judgment to come and the call to repentance, you also find this, that Behind the judgment, after the restoration of justice, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. God intends to do something great. In other words, the destruction, the fire, the tragedy 
the tears do not get the last word. There's a pastor who dabbled in literary criticism named Eric Routley. He wrote a book called The Puritan Pleasures of the Detective Story. So you can imagine, I'm a fan. But these are words that he says about the nature of Christianity and how it speaks to tragedy in the world. He says, any religion is an escape from tragedy, but certain religions, notably that of Christians, are a denial that tragedy has the last word. Tragedy, says the Christian religion, is that which brings people to repentance, which reminds us of the overwhelming weight of evil, error, and nonsense in the world that we know. Tragedy is a general confession, which is answered by an absolution. The absolution is not the tragedy. Tragedy can't provide it, doesn't seek to provide it, doesn't even need to admit its possibility. If you think about that line, tragedy is a general confession which is answered by an absolution. In our worship services, you have this pattern repeated over and over again. We come and we confess our sins. We do it corporately. That's a general confession of sin. In the presence of God, we admit that we're here not as the righteous. We're not here because we're the good people of Sioux Falls. We're here because we're sinners. We generally, together, confess our sin. And every Sunday, that confession is followed by an assurance of pardon, an absolution of sin. Because Scripture says, when we confess our sin, God is faithful to forgive that sin. So what he's saying is that tragedy in life, the bad things we witness in life, those things are like a general confession. They're an acknowledgement of sin, a reminder of evil in the world. Tragedies that we live through are what keep us from believing that everything is basically good and all right in this world. And sometimes we convince ourselves it is. Occasionally, we'll go through kind of a run of good days or even good years, and we'll convince ourselves that we're essentially at peace with the world. That the universe is on our side, rooting for us, trying to uh, do good things for us. And then suddenly tragedy strikes. The veil is, is peeled back a little bit, and we see the essential evil of the world around us. And we're astonished by it. We're astonished by it. We are brought back to a reminder of our sinfulness, the corruption of our nature. That in itself is not the assurance of pardon. That's not the absolution, he says. It's not that if you go through bad things, you will be saved. But rather, the gospel speaks to the tragedy. It comes after the tragedy. Once there is the acknowledgement of sin, then there are the words of assurance spoken by the promise of the gospel. Once there is judgment, then there is restoration. Then Christ makes all things new. She says in Revelation 21.5, well, if Christ is going to make all things new, how should we live now in light of that knowledge? We've talked about how to live in light of the knowledge of coming judgment. How do we live in light of the knowledge that Christ will make all things new, that he will restore his creation? Well, one thing is we should live with a spirit of hope rather than pessimism. Right? Sometimes Christians, because we feel sometimes that we're most in tune with the evil of this world, some of us, like the, the, the T in our theology is total depravity. So we're tuned to see that total depravity everywhere we turn. And it seems as if we are the ones who, who best understand the corrupt nature of this world. And it's easy to look at that world and say, well, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. 
there's no hope for this world, everything is terrible here, and to essentially have a pessimistic outlook. To find ourselves exactly in the place of Jonah. Where we've built ourselves a little shelter and we're looking on self-righteously at the coming judgment of the world because it doesn't touch us. It doesn't affect us. Sometimes that's the way we live, that pessimism. As if God's just going to destroy everything anyway, so none of it really matters. God's not going to just destroy everything anyway. God is going to remake, restore. He's going to restore the creation broken by sin, to put the good back in its place, and that should change the way we feel. The pessimism that we sometimes tell ourselves is pious is actually contrary to the spirit of the gospel and the hope of the gospel. Because knowing that Christ will make all things new, we should value the good in this world and seek to build it and seek to promote it. We should value the good in creation, in the physical world, in life. We should be champions of the good that God has given us, even in a world that has been broken by sin. And we should build on that good. We should build on that good by doing our work, by living out our daily calling for the glory of God. Sometimes we, we say those words, I do this for the glory of God, and it seems like an empty phrase because everything can be for the glory of God. You can do everything for the glory of God. You know, it's not just preachers getting up and proclaiming the word of God for the glory of God. Like accountants can, can go to work and say, well, I'm, I'm adding up numbers for the glory of God. So it just seems like it makes it meaningless, but it's exactly the opposite. What would be meaningless is if the only things we could do for the glory of God were were specifically these things, like the the things of of the pulpit, full-time Christian ministry. The reality is everything can be done for the glory of God. Whatever your calling is, whatever your work is, God has called you into it. God has raised you up to be an ambassador of the good in this place. He doesn't expect for the good only to flourish inside the the cloister of the church. He has called you to bring it into the world, to build it in the world, to do the work he's given you for the glory of God and not to aspire to some other more meaningful thing. The meaning is there in the work he's given you to be done for his glory, to build the good, to plow in hope of what God will do. The fires of destruction, the language of fire is the language of purification. As Jesus says, not everything will be destroyed in the fire. The fire purifies. Only the things that are done for him will last. Only what is done for his glory will survive the fire. That's actually a message of hope, not pessimism. What it means is some things survive destruction, those things which are done for God. We live Our lives for him, if we do our work to his glory, it's not meaningless at all. When we pursue our callings in hope, we testify to Christ's work in us. So we need to live as if judgment is real. We need to live as if Christ will make all things new. And the last thing is to live for the place where righteousness is dwells. To live for the place where righteousness dwells. 
My favorite Thomas Hardy novel is Jude the Obscure. It's one of the most depressing, and it has a shocking ending, which I'm not going to spoil for you now. At the beginning of the book, though, when Jude is young, he has this moment uh, of realization. It's always stuck with me after 25 years, first reading the book. Uh, Jude is an idealistic young man who's grown up in this small village, and he's always aspired to greater things. And on the horizon where he lives, he can go up onto the road and he can look off to the horizon and he sees the spires of this great city called Christminster on the horizon. And he's heard great things about Christminster and he's always dreamed of going there because it seems like such a glorious place, like the ideal place just over the horizon, almost like the celestial city in Pilgrim's Progress. He aspires to go there. And Hardy writes this line, which I think is one of the more depressing lines in modern literature. Um, he, he builds up Jude's aspirations as he looks to Christminster. He dreams of going there. And he actually pictures the idea that someone would come along on the road, someone who's already heading there, and would essentially give him a ride. Say, come with me. I'll bring you to this place you dream of going. And then Hardy says, but nobody ever came because nobody ever does. It's, it's a tragic line in, in a book that only gets worse and more depressing from there, but it sums up the disillusionment. Eventually, Jude does reach Christminster, and he discovers it is no paradise. It is not the place that he dreamed of. He becomes deeply disillusioned. And one of the things about that story that makes it so relatable is that we've all gone through a similar experience. We've all had a Christminster on the horizon. Like, all of us has, have dreamed of a place that if we just got there, that would be paradise. Everything there is good. People there care about the things people should care about. They're not like the people here. If I could just be part of that, if I could just get there, then everything would be great. I would be fulfilled. I would find happiness. That's what we tell ourselves. We all have a Christminster. We dream of paradise but we never reach it because nobody ever comes to bring us there. Because nobody ever does. That just never happens. We dream, but our dreams go unfulfilled. And they lead to disillusionment. Sometimes, it doesn't work quite that way. Some of us have dreamt dreams of paradise and actually had our dreams come true. We've actually gotten the thing that we longed for, only to discover, like Jude eventually does, it's not paradise at all. Like, some of us have actually gotten the things that would make us happy only to find that we're not happy. And another kind of disillusionment sets in. And that disillusionment, it teaches. There's a lesson that it teaches. The lesson is there is no paradise. That the longing for that better world that is inside you, that's naive. It's a product of your immaturity, that part of growing up is realizing that dreams like that are silly, that they won't come true, that it was probably stupid to dream of such things in the first place. But what if all of your disillusionments teach a lesson, but not that one? What if there's a different lesson that life is teaching you, a different truth that the pattern of your life is proclaiming? What if the destination that you dreamt of was the wrong place, but that the desire to reach that paradise, to reach that place, the desire itself was good. What if you dreamed of paradise because you were made to? 
What if that desire had been placed in you by the one who made you? What if you cannot help but dream of Christ's ministers on the horizon? Because you're human and you must. It's only sin that fixes the location of that desire on the wrong destination that leads us to believe that this place or that place will be the paradise that was promised when it won't be and can't possibly be. The desire is good. It's just that we fixed our sights on the wrong place. The lesson isn't to stop desiring. The lesson is to desire the place where righteousness dwells. All the desire we have as human beings is God-given And it can only be God-fulfilled. It's good to long, but long for the right things. Desire the right things. Don't set your paradise just over the horizon. See it where it truly is. See it in the place where righteousness dwells. Peter says, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God has promised not just salvation from punishment, but salvation to communion. Salvation to enter into His presence, to know Him, to meet with Him face to face. That is the paradise that He has placed a longing for within us. That is a longing He will fulfill. If you heed the warning, if you turn from your own unrighteousness, if Christ places, as it were, the cloak of His righteousness upon you, then you will live to dwell in the place where righteousness dwells. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.